Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series this week, The Mysteries of Compassion, with a message entitled, Faithful to the Bible. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 27, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. This is not the first time in this section of Matthew where we're forced to examine the role of Scripture in the life of the follower of Jesus. As we're going to see today, Jesus resisted the temptation to bypass the Bible. He had already said that he had not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. He said that Scripture can't be broken. He had said that not even the least stroke of a pen in the writings of sacred Scripture would pass away. You know, I have a memory of a couple that once came to me. They had begun to attend the church where I was serving, and they invited me over for coffee, and I was delighted to go. I already knew that they were living together out of wedlock, but I was delighted both to welcome them to church, and and I was honored to join them for coffee in their home. I told them so, and they beamed. And when I was there, they said, you know, you do know that we're not married. And I said, yes, I do know. And they said, we're so glad that the church has gotten beyond those tiresome rules it used to have. Your your attitude is truly refreshing. And (laughs) I had to smile in response. Very carefully, I told him that this church was committed to the Bible and to the teaching of Jesus on this matter. We had not changed and neither had I. But I told him my attitude to them was due to the fact that Christ loved sinners and I had learned to do the same. After all, I said, I was a great sinner when Christ found me and what drew me was love. I remember they were shocked, but one of them said, you seem to be such a thoroughly modern church. And I told them that that as a Christian church, we had the freedom to change any tradition we wanted, but we never had the freedom to change any command of Scripture. Now, to be gracious to this couple, they come from a very liberal Christian background and the idea of making a distinction between human traditions and the teaching of the Bible, well, that was altogether confusing for them. They, they had no idea that anyone did that. That's not so unusual. As we've seen in our study of Matthew, the Pharisees were the most prominent religious teachers in Israel, and in their teaching, they combined the tradition of the elders with the teaching of the Bible in such a manner that most people in Israel had no way of separating out the teaching of Scripture from the theological traditions that obscured the Scripture. And so, some people believe that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker, and interestingly enough on that point. There are still people today that think he was. I mean, think about the way in which, you know, many Christians today treat the Lord's Day. And I've often heard more than one say, hey, you know, Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath. So, you know, why should I worry about worshiping one day a week? See, don't you see confusion between a Jesus who broke human traditions on the Sabbath, but never broke the word of God on the Sabbath? Well, let's get into our text today, and we're going to start by what had become a very difficult topic among the disciples. So let's start with Matthew 17, 22 to 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. See, Matthew mentions this conversation happened in Galilee. We've been tracing Jesus' movements. He had left Galilee, and he had gone to the region of Tyre and Sidon up on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And there he had met a Canaanite woman and had healed her daughter. 
Next, he had gone to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. That was in the region of 10 Gentile cities called the Decapolis, and he had there fed the 4,000. Then he had gone north to the region of Caesarea Philippi, where he had taught the disciples about who he truly was. He was the long-awaited Messiah, Savior of the world, and that he had given his disciples a role. Join me in building my church and crashing through the armed gates of Satan's kingdom. But there he had told them for the first time that he would suffer many things from the religious authorities in Jerusalem, and there he would die and rise again. And then after that, Jesus took three of the disciples up a high mountain as he was was transfigured in their presence. And after that, he again confirmed that he would die and rise from the dead. Now he's back in Galilee. He's in the territory of Israel where he has done most of his ministry. In essence, they're back home. It's been a long time out of the country, but now they're back. And immediately he begins to talk to them about his suffering. And you might have noticed that each time he talks about it, he adds more details. This time, he says, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. Another translation says that he will be given or even handed over from one to another. Still, another translation says he will be betrayed. Now, if that's a good translation, I think it is. He's beginning to hint that right at the end, a betrayal is going to happen. Now, of course... We who read this know that that has to refer to Judas, one of the twelve, and the arrangement that he's going to make with the religious establishment. He will tell them where it will be safest to arrest Jesus. He's going to be, you know, the man on the inside giving information to the murderers of Jesus. But here at this time, Jesus gives no details, only that he's going to be handed over. And of course, they're distressed. They know the religious establishment has become the enemy of Jesus. And now, of course, they hear for the first time there's going to be intrigue. And with that, with heavy hearts now, the disciples and Jesus are walking towards Capernaum, which has, for some time now, served as Jesus' hometown. It's the the base of his operations. So let's read verse 24 and then beginning to verse 25. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Yes, he said. Okay, this is a very important moment. So let me explain this tax. First of all, this was not a tax that was imposed on the people by the Roman authorities. Rather, this is a tax that, that, well, it comes directly from the Bible. Let me read it to you. Exodus 30, verse 12. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. And then the rest of that very passage goes on to explain that the tax is to be levied against all who are 20 years or older, and that the exact amount is to be a half a shekel, and that half a shekel is the same amount no matter what your income level and it serves as atonement money. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, in Jesus' day, the shekel of the time of Moses was equal to a double drachma in Jesus' day, which was equal to about, you know, the average daily wage of the average workman. So one day's wages is to be given to the temple. It's a biblical command. And furthermore, the money from that tax was paid to keep the the temple ministry going. And Josephus also tells us that since this temple tax was paid in a Jewish coin, ah, there were temple tax collectors who would make a profit. They would be exchanging foreign money for Jewish money. So imagine the scene. 
Jesus and his disciples, they've been out of Galilee for some time now, so it's quite possible that the tax would have come due while they're out of the country. And so the temple tax collectors who perhaps might have received their tax from Jesus and the disciples, well, they haven't, and now they come to Jesus and ask if Jesus intends to pay this at all. I think they're asking not for the same reason in which one of the Pharisees might have asked the question, that is, in order to trap Jesus. I don't think that's it. I think they genuinely don't know whether or not he pays it. I mean, after all, these tax collectors, I mean, they must have known that on the matters of, let's say, fasting or on the quarrels regarding the Sabbath or in the matter of ritually washing of hands, that Jesus just didn't toe the line of the Pharisees. Well, then, if he didn't do what the Pharisees taught, well, then perhaps he doesn't pay the temple tax either. That's why the question is asked. See, that's because from from the perspective of these tax collectors, I mean, they had no idea of what Jesus actually thought about these matters. But Peter knew. He immediately says, yeah, yeah, he pays it. I mean, after all, Peter had heard Jesus say that, that he didn't come to overturn the law. He came to fulfill it. I mean, Jesus didn't insist on ritual washing of hands before eating because that matter, well, that wasn't in the scripture. See, that matter was in regard to the tradition of the elders. Jesus never felt that he had to keep the traditions of the religious establishment, but he felt no such freedom when it came to the law of God. And so without hesitation, Peter, who has been trained by Jesus, answers very quickly. He simply says, yeah, he pays that. (laughs) There's so much to learn from that very brief encounter. See, here we see the question that that must have meant something. Peter was slowly beginning to learn that the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem were going to murder Jesus. And, you know, to pay the tax, well, it's to pay a tax to the very establishment that sought to kill Jesus. And that might have seemed like a very bitter pill indeed. On the other hand, however, Peter was very clear. If the scripture says it, Jesus does it. That's a great example for all of us today. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference, hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca. The conversation between Peter and the tax collectors, well, that probably happened outside somewhere, probably in the streets of Capernaum. And Peter then goes on his way. He is now going to tell Jesus about that conversation. And what Peter doesn't know is that Jesus already knows all about it. So let's pick up our reading in verses 25 to 27. 
And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, at times like this, and we're reminded again of who Jesus truly is. I don't know what Peter was about to say, but I think it could easily have sounded as follows. Jesus, I just met the collectors of the temple tax, and I guess while we were gone, they had come around to collect the tax, but of course we were gone. And, and furthermore, our absence has fueled the speculation that, that we're no longer faithful to the law of God. So I guess we better attend to this thing as quickly as we can before we give the wrong impression. Well, instead of getting a chance to say all of that, Jesus simply interrupts him because, as you know, Jesus is not just fully man. He's fully God. He's completely aware of the discussion that Peter's already had. And then rather than addressing the matter of whether they should, you know, get on the ball and pay the tax, Jesus takes Peter to an idea that Peter's never considered before. Notice, first of all, he asks about kings and the paying of taxes. Now, of course, we in our day need some background. That's because in our day, we know presidents, prime ministers, they're all required to pay the same taxation rate as everybody else. You know, our leaders are not exempt from taxation, and we believe that's a very important principle to maintain. But what you might not know is that even today, the English monarch is not required to pay taxes at all. The queen, or if there was an English king, doesn't have to pay taxes. And, and by the way, that relates very well to this story. The English monarch voluntarily pays taxes in order not to give offense. But in the ancient world, not only did kings not pay taxes, neither did any other member of their family. Kings collected taxes, kings set the rate of taxation, kings punished people when they refused to pay taxes, but kings and their families most certainly didn't pay the taxes. In the ancient world, that was simply a principle that everyone accepted. Now, Jesus takes it one step further. He, he sets up a hypothetical scenario. He's asking if kings should require taxation from their sons, and of course, that also would never happen. Kings only accept taxes from people who are not part of their family. Well, very good. Having established that, Jesus now wants Peter to understand what's been going on while he's been paying the temple tax in the past. And Peter probably never even thought about this, but it was now time to think about it. Hadn't Peter himself already testified that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, now Jesus says, very good. You know I'm the Son of God, so what's the temple? You know, John, in John chapter 2, verse 16, records Jesus calling the temple his father's house. And back in Matthew chapter 12, well, that chapter opens with another one of those controversies between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees had seen Jesus' disciples picking heads of grain in the field and eating, which, by the way, was their legal right to do. But the Pharisees are saying, that constitutes work, and you can't do that on the Sabbath. And in response, Jesus had reminded the Pharisees that David, the king, when he was hungry, had entered what at that time would have been the tabernacle, and he had eaten the consecrated bread, and yet he was held guiltless before God. 
And then Jesus adds, and here I'm reading Matthew 12, verse 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus says, I am the king and I'm not required to pay any taxes. And in regard to the temple, I'm infinitely greater than that. And I suppose Jesus might have gone on to say, you know, that he would tell the disciples later in Matthew 24 that, you know, very shortly now, the temple's going to be destroyed. There's not going to be one brick that's left on top of another. And so Jesus would remain. The temple would not. And therefore, for all sorts of reasons, Jesus doesn't need to pay this tax. But look, Jesus never goes there. See, unlike some of us who might withhold our tithes, let's say, from our local church because, you know, something there has upset us, well, Jesus would never have done that. He was a biblicist. And in his unique case, Jesus also knew that neither he nor were his disciples required to pay this tax. He knew that from Scripture. And that's because the disciples had been brought into the king's family. They, like he, were exempt. That is the teaching of Scripture. And then Jesus adds the words, but not to give offense. And it's a curious thought. I am paying the temple tax so that I might not give offense. Now, you might want to think about that for a while, because here Jesus really does give an example for believers to emulate. Go with me, for example, to Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, there the Apostle Paul was talking about matters that are not commanded in Scripture. As we all know, the world is full of things that are indifferent to the commands of the Bible. I remember a number of years ago, it was Sunday. I had just completed the final service for the day. It was just a gorgeous, warm summer's day. Instead of having my car out in the back parking lot, I went to the washroom, changed my clothes, changed from my Sunday suit into my motorcycle riding gear. I was changed, I got onto my bike, and I was about to start it up, and I was about to go home. It was going to be a beautiful summer's ride home. I was so thankful. And then a woman approached me, and I could see from her expression she was genuinely upset. So I asked, are you all right? She said, where I come from, no pastor should be allowed to ride a motorcycle. I said, I'm so glad I don't come from where you come from. But was I violating Jesus' principle when I said that? not to take offense. See, here's the problem. If we limit our behavior to everyone who takes offense, you know, I fear we're going to be in a horrible bind. I mean, one person's going to say, music in church is too loud. So not to give offense, we turn it down. Then the next person says, it's way too quiet. So now we don't know what to do. We're going to offend someone. See, many people wrestle with that principle. Am I really to adjust my behavior to everyone who takes offense? And, and furthermore, When the Pharisees said they were offended because Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands, (laughs) Jesus called them hypocrites, even though that offended them. So is there a principle here? Yeah, I think there is. The parallel passage to Romans 14 is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There Paul speaks about food sacrificed to idols and the freedom that Christians have to buy and eat any food that's on sale in the marketplace. We have the knowledge, says Paul, that all food is from God. It doesn't come from the idols. But then he qualifies himself. 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. Their conscience being weak is defiled. And then two verses later in verse 9, he adds, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
That is, if someone who spent years in an idol's temple so that incense alone reminds them of their former idolatry, well, so does food. So you watch out, says Paul. You might devastate that person's faith through your freedom. So here that is the principle that we have, and it comes from Jesus. If our freedom from the traditions of men actually causes someone to stumble in their faith, we will then determine we're not going to give that offense. In that case, we're going to limit our freedom. It's a basic Christian principle. It's not that we jump because of everyone's prejudice or because you know of their wacky legalistic standards. No, that's not it. But we will not cause someone else to stumble in their faith. And that's what Jesus was teaching Peter. I'm not required to pay the temple tax at all, but if I use that freedom, well, others are going to think that I'm teaching that you don't have to keep the commands of the Bible. And because of that, I'm going to limit my freedom and I'm going to pay the temple tax. And so Jesus instructs Peter to go fishing. You know, several ancient texts in that day speak about fishermen finding valuable items inside a fish, which the fish would have swallowed up. Well, this fish must have swallowed a shekel. And Jesus, who is Lord and God, and who sovereignly directs all of nature, ensures that the fish that Peter caught would be the very one that had swallowed that coin, and that would be enough to pay both of their taxes. I don't think Peter forgot that. And I don't think we should either. Let's take Jesus' example to heart. If the scripture commands it, we're gonna obey. And if love for those who might stumble demands it, we will seek their welfare. May the Lord give us insight on this. John, I think this brings up a great point. First and foremost, we believe that the church is God's mechanism for spreading the good news to the world. But we also believe that our allegiance needs to be to the truth of the gospel, to the Bible, to understand the Christ of the Bible. Yeah, I know. Uh, Ben, you and I know that there are a number of people now, especially in our day, who are saying things like, "Uh, well, you know, I, I follow Jesus, but I'm not guilty of bibliolatry. That's the wording that's sometimes used. The problem with that is when we find the real Jesus, we find that he is faithful to Scripture at every single level. I mean, I've already pointed out, he said, Scripture can't be broken. That is, Jesus believed in biblical inerrancy. So if you follow Jesus, you ought to follow him and live in the way in which he exemplified for us, faithful to the word at every single level. It's important for us to see that in Jesus and then to practice it in our own lives. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Matthew, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. February is a critical month for raising funds to support the international ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. The primary focus continues to be India and surrounding areas, providing Bible teaching resources that include the teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, aired and distributed across India, throughout much of Asia and the Middle East. Other efforts include partnering with Back to the Bible India to re-establish a significant, vibrant and sustainable expression of ministry. This month, we're praying that you'll join us in reaching our budget of $75,000. And to celebrate these efforts and as our free gift to you, we want to send you a limited edition music CD created specifically for Back to the Bible Canada called Songs of Zion. This is an inspirational CD performed by friend of Back to the Bible India, violinist Shalem Christie. 
Call today for your free gift to support these international efforts and to request your CD gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.